Hey, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning, man. I want to say good morning to our Northeast campus. Uh, Joseph Anderson, your campus director there, just been telling me a lot of the cool things the Lord has been doing there. Several of you have reached out to me recently about it. I'm just so thankful for what God is doing among you and really just our church as a whole, y'all. What an incredible weekend we had last weekend um, at both of our campuses. I just want to tell you I was super proud um, to be your pastor last week, and I'm proud every single weekend, really, but um, it just really came out uh, in a couple of ways. Uh, we, we had the second really just tragedy that we've had in a month as a church where we lost a member in a tragic accident, and I saw y'all show up and care for a family and a community group. It was just grieving. I saw the pastoral team put in a whole lot of extra hours, and many of you jump in and serve and help, and then y'all, Sunday came, and what better time to celebrate the resurrection hope than when you're in the midst of tragedy and um, Sunday came and y'all came expectant and that's what I love about our church y'all are an expectant people we say it all the time we expect God to change a life today and y'all live and breathe that I love that this church believes that God is still alive and working uh, we challenge you to invite somebody far from God but close to you and we, we said, man, it'd be awesome if we had something like 200 people show up that just didn't know God. It was new to them, didn't know Christ. And by every estimate, y'all did way more than that. Uh, we had, we shattered whatever our previous record attendance was. There was something like over 1,400 people that were at our church last weekend. We saw people baptized, saw people make professions of faith. We saw people take their first step in um, a ministry team. And most importantly, the gospel was proclaimed that if Jesus got out of the grave, there's hope for sinners. Amen. Praise God. Now you can celebrate by applause. That's right. Man. Hey, if you are new, um, my name is Spence. My parents taught me to introduce myself. My name is Spence. Um, I have the distinct joy to serve as the lead pastor here at Mercy Church. Uh, we are here to help people, all people. Doesn't matter how long you've been at church. Doesn't matter if it's your first time ever. All people, doesn't matter your age, race, income, doesn't matter. All people take their next step in following Jesus. And we want to help you do that. Whether that's baptism because you have decided to follow Christ, but you never made that public. Maybe it's a decision to follow Jesus. Give your life to him, man. It's the best decision I've ever made in my life. I've never regretted it. Um, whatever that next step is, maybe it's just reading your Bible regularly and drawing close to the Lord. We got Bibles out in the lobby. We will give you as you leave today, whatever it is, man, we want to help you take your next step. I'll tell you next weekend is something we call starting point. It's after every service. And it's basically an orientation about 15, 20 minutes to who we are as a church. And we'll tell you all the next steps uh, and help you figure out what your next step might be here at Mercy. So I invite you to stick around for that. But if you have your Bible, I want you to open it up to the book of Exodus. Book of Exodus. If you're new to the Bible, good news, this one's just after Genesis, and that's the first one. So just second book, all right? Um, right after there, make your way to chapter seven, and we are gonna get after it this morning. Now, since we weren't in Exodus last weekend, let me just kind of catch you up, and you're new to mercy, let me catch you up on what's going on and where we are in the account, all right? God's people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they have been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, waiting for the deliverance that he promised he would bring. They don't give up waiting because their parents and their parents' parents have passed down a legacy of trusting God even when he seems silent. And they believe that he's faithful even in the silence. Most important thing in their captivity, generation after generation, is what they thought about God. 
That, that belief that God is big enough, loving enough, and strong enough to keep his promise. It carried them for generations. And it will carry you through those times where he seems silent. Well, now Moses comes on the scene, born to a Hebrew family, but raised by Egyptians. Not just any Egyptians, raised in Pharaoh's very home. Born a slave, but raised as a member of a slave owner's household. Wild, right? And that identity crisis reaches ahead when Moses murders an Egyptian who was beating up one of his fellow Hebrews. So he flees into the wilderness. And out in the wilderness, he's out there for 40 more years. Now, 80 years old, he's married, he has a family now. And then God shows up when Moses is 80, because it's never too late in your life for God to use you. And it might just be that even if you're in here and you are 87 years old, that everything he's been doing is setting you up for what he is about to do. All right, you are not done being used by God until you meet God face to face. All right, anyways, he shows up in a burning bush. I didn't mean to have like a little senior citizen just moment there with you, but I believe it a thousand percent, okay? Um, he shows up in a burning bush and commissions Moses to be his agent of deliverance for all of his people. And Moses is like, I don't know about that. I'm not smart enough, I'm not strong enough. And God doesn't correct him. He doesn't coddle him and say, you know what, Moses, you are smart and you are strong. No, God says, I will be with you. That's what he gives. The presence of God, that becomes Moses' source of confidence for carrying out his assignment. The same thing is true for us. All right, it is God's presence with you. It's not your smarts, your wits, or anything else. It is God's presence with you that gives you confidence in your assignment. Because Jesus, what's he going to say in Matthew 28? I will be with you. I'm giving you this assignment, but don't worry, I ain't going anywhere. That's the only hope that we have for carrying out God's mission is God's presence with us. All right, so Moses and his brother Aaron come into Egypt, summon all their courage, and they demand, Pharaoh, let God's people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And things get harder. And sometimes obeying God means things get harder. There was a big lesson we saw in that of whether or not we're going to trust God when things get difficult, even in the midst of obeying him. All that leads up to chapter 7, verse 14, where we're in today. And like I said, some of you are newer to the Bible, and the Bible is going to be your absolute most essential tool for following Jesus. Today, I want to model good Bible study for you, okay? Hopefully, we do that every week here. We try to make the Bible accessible. We just walk through a passage of Scripture, but I'm going to really just kind of lead you in how you can study the Bible, all right? Three questions that you can ask any passage of Scripture. And all we're going to do today is we're going to observe. I'm going to walk you through these 12 verses, verses 14 through 25. We're going to walk through it, observe it. I'm going to show you some things to help you understand it. And then we're going to ask three questions. What does this passage say about God? What does this passage say about humanity or me as a person? And then how does this passage point me to Jesus? Because all the Bible is either pointing to Jesus, talking about Jesus, or looking back on Jesus, all right? And so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna ask those three questions and no matter what passage of scripture you are reading, and if you've never jumped into the Bible before and you're like, I do not know how to study the Bible, just ask those three questions. And I would just hopefully today is a model for you to do that. Community group leaders, this can be your outline. As you go into any time where you're like, I don't know what we're going to do in community group. You're going to take a passage of scripture and do those three questions. All right. You're going to get meaning out of it, but we'll get into it and I'll show you as we go through. All right. So we'll start in verse 14. And as I often like to say around here, because we love God's word, I want you to be ready for it. Are you ready? All right, I love this new podium. I can hit it and you guys are on it. Let's go. 
Verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Now, as we've been going through this, we're seeing it already and we'll continue to. Sometimes the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it's just observed like this, that his heart is hard. And sometimes we see Pharaoh harden his own heart. One thing's for sure, Pharaoh is an example to us of what not to do, right? In literary terms, he's a foil, right? An example of what not to do. And in fact, we see it over in Hebrews 3, where um, I'm gonna say the apostle Paul, the writer of Hebrews says, watch out brothers and sisters, so there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leads you to fall away from the living God, but instead encourage one another all the more. While today, while it's still today, so that none of you is hardened that's the language of Hebrews, and it's hearkening back to this interaction here between Moses and Pharaoh so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Because of Pharaoh's hard heart, he refuses to obey God. And I promise you the outcome is going to be the same in your life. If your heart is hardened towards God, you will, of course, disobey him, which is why you need other people in your life to call you away from that, remind you of God's goodness, and it's why you need his word. I see this with people. If your heart is hardened, you don't care what God says. You want to do what you want to do. That's Pharaoh. All right? And really, Pharaoh is an example of, and we all will be, that harden our heart towards God will be an example of Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before the fall. Verse 15. The Lord says, go to Pharaoh in the morning. When you see him walking out of the water, stand ready to meet him by the bank of the Nile. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a snake. Okay. If you missed a couple of weeks ago, let me see what I was talking about. Moses and Pharaoh have already had a little showdown. Moses and his brother Aaron showed up at Pharaoh's house and say, God says, let his people go so that they can go into the wilderness and worship him. Pharaoh says, no. So Aaron does what God told him to do in such a scenario. Throw your staff down and it will turn into a snake. Aaron does it. But then Pharaoh's sorcerers throw their staffs down and they turn into snakes. So now you've got lots of snakes. We don't know exactly how many snakes. Uh, 2 Timothy alludes a little bit, 3.8, seems to indicate there were just two sorcerers, Giannis and Yambres. There may have been others. We don't know. But even if there's just three snakes, that is too many snakes because one snake is too many snakes, right? But that's what's happening here. And then Aaron's staff snake swallows up Pharaoh's staff snakes. And then Aaron picks up a snake, turns into a staff again. It's a wild foreshadowing that even though Pharaoh appears to have power over God's people, as Pharaoh's many snakes are outnumbering God's one, even though Pharaoh appears to have the power over God's people, the message in that moment is that God's people are going to prevail. That's what happened, and yet Pharaoh's heart is still hard, and he did not let God's people go, so Moses and Aaron are coming back the next day, verse 16. God says, tell him, here's what you tell him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you, sent me to tell you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. This is a good moment for us here to reinforce in narrative what you're seeing me do right here today is reinforcing a lot of what we've already done. This is good to do in narrative because remember what is happening here in this moment is connected to what already happened and to what's going to happen. Right? So we don't ever read the Bible just in isolation. We connect it to the bigger story. And we remember a few weeks ago, God says, let my people go. It's for a purpose so that they may worship me. God saves them not just to save them from Egypt, but to save them to himself. 
And he does the same with you and me. You know, God desires so much more for your life than just a quick interaction that gets you out of hell. When he saves you, he puts onto you the title of adopted son or daughter. You're not just some guilty person who is now set free. Now you are that, and that alone is incredible and worthy of praising him, but you're brought into a family so that you can worship him and actually be with him in his presence. And that's where the joy of the Christian life is. Some of you have never experienced what the Bible calls reconciliation with God. You've treated him just uh, like it's a transaction, but he's offering you reconciliation. You're still estranged from God. You're offered reconciliation. You know, guys, for those of you that are Christians, you said, yes, I believe. I believe that God saved me from my sin. I've accepted that forgiveness and start walking with God, your father. And an easy way to start that, I never want to just tell you to do it without giving you some handles on that. Man, you can just go to Matthew chapter six and just start praying the Lord's prayer every day. Just, he's already given you the words. If you're like, I don't know how to pray. That's okay. Neither did the disciples, right? And he has given you his words. Which means they're better than any prayer you could come up with anyways. And just start walking with him. That's experience the power of being reconciled to God and having his presence with you. All right, so he says that. He says, I want, go tell Pharaoh this so that they may worship me in the wilderness. And then... You say to Pharaoh, but so far you have not listened. (laughs) God says to Moses, tell Pharaoh, I told you to do this, but you aren't listening. You are hearing, but you're not listening. The sound waves have made it to your ears, but the message has not made it to your heart. That will preach. All right, and I'm going to preach it here in a little bit uh, as we talk more about Pharaoh's pride, okay? Um, what's keeping Pharaoh from listening? It's his heart hardened by pride. And so, y'all, when we ask our three questions here in a little bit and we get to that one, what does this passage tell me about humanity? Man, you better believe we're going to circle on back to verse 16, okay? Because Pharaoh is revealing something very, very common, but also very, very dangerous about the human condition. His pride is keeping him from listening to God. Verse 17, this is what the Lord says. Here's how you will know that I am the Lord. That is the purpose of these plagues, to know that I am the Lord. Watch, I'm about to strike the water in the Nile with the staff in my hand, and it will turn to blood. The fish in the Nile will die, the river will stink, and the Egyptians will be unable to drink water from it. This is the announcement of the first of what will be a series of plagues. It'll be 10 in all. That'll be very dramatic and very intentional. This is not a random act of power. There's that purpose that you'll know that he is the Lord. Just like every culture, the Egyptians had gods that they worshiped. And one of them was the God of the Nile. In fact, the name is it's H-A-P-I. And I looked at different translations, but I'm just going to go with happy, okay? So the Nile God, happy. This is not a random act. What it's doing, it's a direct challenge to one of the central Egyptian gods by the God of the Israelites. All right, verse 19. So the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, canals, ponds, and all their water reservoirs, and they will become blood. And there will be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in wooden and stone containers. This wasn't just the Nile. This is everywhere. Like Egyptians 
in their homes with no idea, just living their daily life, no idea what's going on, trying to bake their bread, steam their broccolini for dinner that night, right? And all of a sudden, blood starts steaming in that pan. I'll go ahead and tell you right now, Courtney would be out that door, so that's my wife, out that door so fast, going to like Hebrew filet to get dinner for us. She's like, ain't no way, ain't no way I'm staying in here. Man, see, what I want you to see here is Pharaoh's rejection of God starts to affect all of Egypt, never just Pharaoh. God's always doing more than you know what's going on, always. In each home, God is creating discomfort that's gonna lead to questions. In the end, you're gonna see even some Egyptians go with Israel. This was done so that Pharaoh would know, but so that all of Egypt would know who the one true God was. Verse 20, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and his officials, he raised the staff, struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad, the Egyptians could not drink water from it. There was blood throughout the land of Egypt. Do you, do you like know the smell of dead fish? Like, let me, let's, let's just fully immerse ourselves in the senses of what's happening here. My, um, my college roommate has a birthday on Tuesday, our first year uh, living together. His birthday comes around and it's you know, mid-April like it is right now. And we've gathered, uh, we've gotten to know each other pretty well over that year. And uh, we had six other guys, we all lived together. And right before spring break, Michael, one of our roommates decides it'd be really a fun birthday prank to pull on Bill, the birthday boy, uh, to put a dead fish in his car, okay? Now, now calm down, um, here's the idea. We were supposed to go out like a couple hours later, okay? So it would be in there and it would be just enough time for it to be like, hmm, that's weird. And then we'd all laugh and get the thing and everything else. Well, what we didn't know was that Bill was planning to sell his car. So right after Michael does this, Bill drives his car back home to his parents' house and parks it in the driveway where it sat baking in a mid-April heat wave for five days, right? Until the guy showed up who was supposed to buy the car and then Bill's dad opens up the door and you know, five day old salmon rotten just comes billowing out, right? Um, which explains why Bill's dad was skeptical of us from then on. <laughs> Here's the point. I wanted to immerse you in that. Really feel it with all of your senses as you're studying the Bible, get yourself in there. And now imagine that smell literally everywhere you go. No going out for fresh air, no running away from it. That's the air combined with no water for seven days. This is a major disruption in all of Egypt for the whole nation. The river God of Egypt is now bloodied by the God of the Hebrews. Verse 22, something strange and unexpected happens. The magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their occult practices. Now, what's interesting is they didn't reverse it. That would have been more impressive. Instead, they just kind of mimic what God is doing. And since God has done it all, we don't even know exactly what has happened here. And they certainly couldn't undo what God has done. God is the one who stops this plague. And in the next plague, we're going to see Pharaoh goes to Moses and Aaron, not to these magicians, to beg for the plagues to stop. These are things, these, what these magicians are doing, they look like they have the power of God. But they're going to prove to be false gods. These gods are going to prove to be imposters. And eventually they will prove to be powerless when compared to God. Things that mimic God, <laughs> but don't actually have the power of God and eventually prove 
to be worthless, empty comparisons to God, imposters. You have any of those things in your life? Things that you have been like Pharaoh, leaning on, devoting yourself to, saying, I don't have to deal with God because I got these things and these things seem to satisfy and they seem to be good enough. If you don't know what they are, you should ask somebody who loves you. What things in my life do my actions and speech reveal to be imitators of God to me? You don't want to go down Pharaoh's road, but blind spots are what they are, y'all. Finishing up verse 22. So Pharaoh's heart was hard. He would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned around, went into his palace, didn't even take, it to, take this to heart. Didn't even wait for the blood to turn back to water. He just saw enough with his guys to think, ah, you know, I've got guys that can do it too. So I'm choosing to ignore this problem, but I'm not going to go and face and deal with this God. I don't want to deal with that. Their God might be doing something. Don't want to do it. My guys do a pretty good job imitating and I can control my guys. So I'm not listening. So easy for us to ignore the one true God when we can get a cheap imitation of him that we can control. Verse 24, all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink because they could not drink the water from the river. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. All right, remember our three questions. What does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about humanity? And how does it point to Jesus? You're gonna get incredible fruit from that with God in God's word over time. Here's what I think this plague, and because this is the first of, we'll be in the plagues for about three weeks, I think, uh, maybe four. I wanna show you a little bit that we're supposed to be seeing from all of them, but I think we can get it all even from just this one. Here's what the first thing, I'm gonna show you three things that it's showing us about God, okay? First, the plagues and this plague right here is showing us that God is the God of creation. He's the one in control of creation. And here's why that's important. If that's true, we are most alive when we are walking in step with him. These plagues are not random. They are purposeful. What's happening with each one of them is God is undoing his creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, God brings order out of chaos. Here in Exodus, he's bringing chaos out of order. Why? To show you that when you push away from him, when you disobey him and reject him, you actually experience the opposite of the way life is supposed to be. You're meant to walk in harmony with God and with his creation. And when we sin, what's happening is that we're falling out of that harmony with God. Like he puts Adam and Eve in the garden and integrates their lives into the life of the garden. And as we push away from God, we are literally disintegrating ourselves from God. And our life experiences the effect of that. Sin, y'all, doesn't just incur God's wrath or judgment. It does do that, but it also corrupts the created order of things. So we experience a corrupted version of life. Here's why this matters so much. When we talk about following God's way and following God's word, many people hear that as restrictive to them, is that that will be, that will be incumbent on their freedoms. Like, I want to do me. I want to be me, right? That's what I want to do. And if you tell me that now I got to follow what God says, that's restrictive. And Christianity is often labeled as restrictive. The problem with that whole assumption is that your definition of freedom is doing whatever you want. And I would argue that that's absurd. In fact, my old pastor, JD, he used to say, imagine a fish getting mad at how restricted he was by living in the water. 
so mad that he was confined to the water. After all, he watched Little Mermaid, right? He saw Ariel got to go, walk on land. And Disney's so great at just peddling really bad lies and really great music, right? And so he wants to get in, I'm telling you, he wants to get in on that, right? So he's like, I want to be free from the water. I want to do me. And so he decides, I'm going to go be free. And he goes and jumps out on the land to live in his freedom for two minutes. And then what happens? He dies. Why? Because he was made for water. He was made for water. Take it out of the ocean and think about it in your own life. You can say, I want to be free to eat whatever I want to eat. Why don't you try that? See how it goes through, if all you do is eat whatever you want to eat. I would love to eat nothing but a reverse seared medium rare steak every evening for the rest of my life. And in fact, if you supply the steak, I'll cook it and we'll have a good time together, okay? But if, we do, if I do that, doctor tells me, I'm gonna die, okay? It's not gonna be, why? Because I'm not made that way. Y'all, freedom isn't do whatever you want. That's the enlightenment view of freedom. Freedom is to be unencumbered to live how you were created to live. And the plagues are reminding us that God is the one that created you. God is the one that has complete control over creation. And to live apart from him is not freedom at all. The more you live in step with how he has designed the world, the more freedom you will experience. In fact, um, Romans is going to call sin something that you eventually become in bondage to. Sin, choosing your way over God's way. Your way, your idea of freedom will actually enslave you, eventually kill you. Here's the thing that the plagues are showing us. It's showing us very clearly that God is the only God. The second thing it's showing us about God is that God's the only God. There's a spot between plague nine and 10 where God's gonna say to Pharaoh that the plagues are directed at Pharaoh so he will know. It's uh, Exodus 9, 14, that there are no other gods like him. He alone is God. Like a lot of people, Pharaoh is not so much an atheist as he is a pluralist. Like Egypt has their gods and so do the Hebrews and Pharaoh thinks my gods have some power just like Moses and Aaron. What does God do? God begins to systematically wipe out his gods beginning right here with the river God. And some scholars say Pharaoh is gonna, like he's gonna be coming up out of the water. That's where Moses and Aaron are supposed to meet him. It's like he goes and pays homage to this God every single morning. And right here in the morning, God is showing his power over the gods of Egypt, figuratively killing the river God. Same thing will happen with, um, we're gonna see it with the sun God, the fertility God, which is a woman's body with the head of a frog. A uh, whole new meaning of the word ribbit. I don't know what that meaning is, but it's strange. Then you got the cow God. And then eventually Pharaoh himself is viewed as a God, right? What are the plagues? Darkness, the frogs, disease, cattle, and the death of Pharaoh's son. In the plagues, God is showing his power over the powerless Egyptian gods. And the consistent message of Christianity is that there is only one God and only one way to know him. And you might say, yeah, that's arrogant for you to say that. Well, look, I promise you that's not what I'm trying to do. But that is who he reveals himself to be. And I'm just the mailman. What we can't do is change God into something we like a little bit more and can control a little bit more. That's not up to us. You can either believe it or reject it. But he makes the claim to be the one and only true God. Last thing the plague show us about God is that he's merciful. He's merciful. Think about this. The river is filled with blood for seven days. Doesn't stay that way. God turns it back. 
Keep reading and what you'll see time after time in these plagues, as soon as Pharaoh goes and says, all right, all right please stop, kind of cries uncle sort of thing, God relents. He pulls back. He's merciful and patient with Pharaoh when he didn't have to be. And sometimes God lets us experience the effect of our sin as an act of mercy towards us. Not because he's cruel or vindictive, but because he's loving. I think of 2 Peter 3, the Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. As a loving father, he may let you experience that. Why? To draw you back to himself. And if you turn to him, you experience the God of redemption. That's what he shows us about God. Now, what does it show us? Second question, what does it show us about humanity? To answer that question, let's go back to verse 16. Pharaoh has heard what God had said, but didn't listen. His pride is hardening his heart, keeping, keeping him from listening to God. What does it show us about humanity? It shows us how deadly our pride is. You guys ever, let me think of it this way. Um, you guys ever use noise-canceling headphones? These things became like a means of survival for a lot of parents during the pandemic, all right? Um, you know, definitely for people, like, as we're working from home, I got four kids at home, trying to do school every day, about 10.30 a.m., some arguments breaking out between some kids because we all got cabin fever, and do I hear the argument? Nope. I got some Spotify chill study vibes going on in my ears, right? I'm good. But then it kind of backfires because my wife comes into the room um, only when absolutely necessary. She runs the show so well. But she comes in the room, she starts talking to me, and I'm looking at her, and I see her mouth is moving, but I got chill study vibes happening right here, right? Um, and she sees me keep my headphones on. She starts saying some things, different things. Um, and I can hear muffled sound, but nothing's really registering, all right? That's the problem with the noise-canceling headphones when you're in a conversation. You can hear a muffled sound, but you can't really hear what the person is saying. All right, here's the connection. I really believe that pride is the noise-canceling headphones of the human heart. It keeps the voice of God just kind of muffled and from really hearing him. You might hear something, you might even read your Bible, but you're not listening. And the incredibly deceptive thing about pride is you don't realize the headphones are on. By the end of this series, y'all, you're going to be like, man, Spence has talked about Pharaoh's pride a lot. There's a reason. The Bible talks about Pharaoh's pride a lot. Chapter after chapter in this thing, the Lord keeps bringing it up almost as if pride is something you need to hear a lot about because maybe you're having some trouble seeing it in yourself. Like if all I did was just a quick flyby of it, you know, by the way, Pharaoh was prideful. Don't be like him. You never hear it. You're a little muffled thing there. Pride is muffling the voice of God in your life. Here, I'll show you some ways. It's when you're casual with sin. This is, it, that sin right there, it's just not that big of a deal. That's not a big deal. Do you see that anywhere in scripture? God is never casual with sin. That's your pride muffling God's voice out and turning it into, oh, that sin's just a little one. That's your pride comparing your sin to the other guy's sin and saying, at least I'm not him. God doesn't compare your sin to others. That's, that's all you. Another example, y'all, is when you're casual with his church. God calls it his bride. God gives weighty words about this gathering that we do here, about sitting under the teaching of the word, of singing together and celebrating the gospel together. 
that there's great power in this weekly rhythm of serving one another, of giving to the mission. And y'all, I, I believe, like I said, it is my joy to serve here and to serve you. You know, in the United States, the average church member attends church 1.4 times per month. And I know it's my professional job to be here. And I also real, realize the irony of saying it to people that are like here right now, okay? So let's all acknowledge what it, I just don't know if there's anyone else in your life who's gonna tell you to cherish his bride over and above your pride. I mean, man, I see the way high school coaches talk about how you have no excuse, saw it this week, high school coach, you have no excuse to ever miss a practice. The only excuse is a death in the family or you got knocked unconscious, have amnesia and are not aware that you play on this team. And I'm like, okay, now let's talk about the church because which one has eternal significance? Right, and so I, I gotta tell you this as your pastor to cherish his bride and watch out for your pride saying, I'm gonna be casual with sin and I'm gonna be casual with God's bride. Now, last question. This is what it says about humanity. Now, what does it say? How does this point us to Jesus? See, the plagues point to Jesus as our redeemer. When Jesus shows up on the scene, he performs lots of miracles. But you ever thought about what he's doing in them? They're not random acts of power either. What he's doing is mending creation, putting it back to the way it should be, redeeming creation from sin and restoring it to what it was meant to be. He doesn't do random things. Like he didn't just get, gather, let's get everybody on the hillside. Now I'm just gonna fly. He doesn't do that. Some of you are like, I wish he would. Well, that wouldn't make sense because that's not what he's there to do. It's not what he's there to do. He doesn't do cool tricks. He's restoring creation to its intended order. He's making the blind see and the lame walk. It's the reversal in many ways of what God did in the plagues, but both of them showing you that he is the one true God by giving you evidence he's the God of creation. And he's also merciful. He does miracles so that you can see that if he can heal your sight, if he can heal your legs, he can certainly heal your soul. That's what makes the gospel so amazing. It's almost unbelievable that the creator God should rightly judge his creation for rejecting him. And yet he's so merciful that he doesn't rain down death on us. He doesn't wipe us off the face of the earth. Instead, he sends the plague onto Christ who took the full payment for our sin and the river of blood the river that flows down from Christ's body becomes the river of life for us. What amazing grace that we see in Christ. We sinners are spared by the blood of Christ. What grace. And as you study and read your Bible and you see how the scriptures are pointing to Christ, the first response of your heart should not, there should be, what do I do now? And I believe that you need to pray that before the Lord. What conviction out of what I'm reading, what should I do now? But first, it's to worship what has been done for you. Worship him again. Immerse yourself. Jesus says, abide in me, then you'll bear fruit. So as we go through the scripture week in and week out, I just want you to abide in Christ. And I believe he's going to bear great fruit in your life. But don't skip that. Look to Jesus and what he's done for you. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your holy word. What a gift. Thank you for the story that we are, this account that we're going through. 
God, I pray that we would be humbled. Would you humble us in our pride? Give us a deepening of friendships that will help us. Brothers and sisters who we know love you and love us. Father, would our sense of awe, Father, would you grow our sense of awe and wonder at who you are? Would we see that you indeed are the one and only true God? You are the God over creation. You are merciful. Convict us of our pride and draw our hearts back to the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your love. We praise you. We worship you. We celebrate that we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen.